And if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, we're just really happy that you're here. And our hope for you is that you enjoy your experience, that you feel welcome. And most importantly, that you just feel and sense the, the love of God and his presence in this place. And that you can walk out differently than when you came in this morning. And uh, we are not going to start a new series today. Our next series starts in October, in which we're going to be talking about the vision that God has given us for our church. And the vision hasn't changed, but we're just going to spend five weeks talking through that so that we can get a good understanding and realize that this is not my idea, it's not Lauren's idea, it's not the staff's idea, it's God's idea. It's rooted in Scripture, and we want to come uh, in line with Him. So we're going to start that in October. And last week, we came together for one service, celebrated as a big family with pastors Ed and Karen, uh, the passing of the spiritual baton, so to speak. And uh, it was really incredible for me. I had never been a part of something like that, so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how to approach it. But uh, it was powerful and emotional for me. I was so grateful to have my grandfather here, who's a retired minister, to be able to share that day with us and, and say a prayer of blessing. But the thing that arose out of it that was most... Um, impacting to me was the message that pastor preached. Uh, He preached out of Joshua chapter 1, and if you don't remember, or if you do, the very first Sunday uh, as pastor of this church, I preached from the same passage, made some of the same points, but here's the cool thing. Pastor and I did not talk about what I preached about. I didn't tell him that I had spoke on that. He didn't tell me that he was preparing that message. He simply sent his notes in uh, on, on Wednesday like he did for 32 years. I'm getting all prepared and ready to go. And when I saw his notes, I sent him an email. And I said, Pastor, that's the exact same thing that I preached the day after you retired and left. And what it spoke to me was this, is that the, the unity that's in this place, that God is, is, is the head of this church through Jesus. And I just believe with all my heart that he wants this church to succeed, that he has big plans uh, for us and what he wants to do in this area to reach our city, our country, and our world. And for me, it's a privilege and an honor to just be a part of this. I know that the success of this church and what God is doing is not simply because of me or Lauren or anybody. It's because of God. And uh, not every church gets to experience what we're experiencing. They should, but they don't. It doesn't mean that we're super special and God likes us more. It just means that we have a group of people that are committed to being in unity and committed to doing what God has called us to do. And when we come together, we can do far more than we could apart. And so I just wanted to say thank you for um, not just celebrating with us, but actively making a decision to say, you know what, we're going to remain in unity, and we're going to be about what God's about, because it's more important than our own opinion. And uh, so I wanted to say thank you uh, for everything, and uh, that I'm just excited for the future. And for the next couple weeks, um, I'm going to speak this week. Lauren and I and Carson are going to be on vacation next week, so we won't be here. Pastor Brian's going to be here. I know God has laid something on his heart for all of you, and the youth are going to be participating in that service, so I want to encourage you all to come out and support them. But the last Sunday in in September, I'm really excited about. I will be here. I won't be speaking. We have a missionary from Guatemala. His name is uh, Bill Vasey. I've talked about him before. Uh, Bill went to Guatemala in 1968. And uh, God used him to not only translate the Bible, but to take this language. It's called the Quiche language. It was an oral language. It had no uh, written form. He's a linguist by trade. He developed a written language and then spent 20-plus years of his life translating the entire Bible into that language for the Quiche Indian people in Guatemala. And he's got an incredible story. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never met anybody like him. And I think he might be a person, one of the people that you meet just you know once or twice in your life. And I know it's going to be a blessing for each and every one of you. So I encourage you to come on the the last Sunday in September. 
And those are my plugs for the morning. So we can move on. What I want to speak on today, I want to go to the first, uh, to, excuse me, to John chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. And you can turn there in your Bibles or your, your phones or your, your tablet devices. And if you don't have any of that, that's okay. It's going to be right on the screen behind me. And we're going to look at, for some, a very familiar passage of Scripture. And for some, maybe it's the first time you heard it. And it's the feeding of the 5,000. And it appears in every one of the Gospels, but we're going to read it from John. So let's jump in. It says, After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. And turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed him. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for just the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for every person in this room. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our ears, our hearts, and our minds to receive from you this morning. May we see Jesus in a way that we've never seen him before, because when we see him, we cannot be the same. And help me to speak this uh, boldly and clearly, and help us to enjoy the beautiful weather that you've given us. And everybody said... Amen. Why don't you just turn to your neighbor and say, fall is here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for decreased humidity, open windows, and hopefully for a period of time, cheaper utility bills. I love this weather. Uh, I want to ask a question this morning. How many of you guys, when you were growing up, and maybe your children do this today, and maybe you on some level, you say the phrase, when I grow up, I want to be this, or when I grow up, this is what I want to do. You know, you hear kids say, when I grow up, I want to be a, an astronaut, or a scientist, or a fireman, a basketball player, whatever it may be. And then you get a little older, and you use the phrase, I, I, when I grow up, I want to do something big with my life. You know, my son is three and a half, and he started to use that phrase, when I grow up. I don't know where he heard it from. Maybe I asked him one day, what do you want to do when you grow up? And the other day, we're driving in the car, and he says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be like you. And uh, I, was, I was very, you know, impacted. I even got a little bit emotional. And then a split second later, uh, Carson says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be a stop sign. <laughs> and uh, I looked to my right, and we were stopped at a stop sign. And then as we drove on, about every other thing that he saw, that's what he wanted to be. And I said, well, it's great to be on the same level as stop signs and trees and barns and cars, but it's all right. But yeah, it's a, it's a familiar phrase that we use in our culture. I'm not sure if people all around the world use it, but I bet that they do, especially when they're young. But one of the things that I've found in my own life is that as I get older, and I'm almost 30, sounds better than 29, is that, you know what, I, I still use that phrase. When I grow up, this is what I want to do. I maybe don't use that specific language 
but I make statements that, hey, when I'm at this stage in life, then I'm going to make this contribution. When I get here, then I will do something significant. I think that inside each and every one of us is a desire to do something significant. There is a level of, uh, of a significant contribution on the inside of us that we have to make. But I think, unfortunately, as we go through life, we find ourselves looking down in our hands and we say, what I have to offer in this moment just isn't that significant. So when I get here, this is what I'm going to do. You know, as I prepared for uh, this week, I uh, originally, I spoke... Uh, a shortened version of this message to a, a Christian school out in Hillsborough for a, a chapel. And one of the people that goes to school there, they go to church here, and they say, wait, would you come speak? And I'm sh- I said, sure. They said, your audience is going to be uh, kindergarten to 12th grade. And I said, whoa, okay. That's a little bit broader of an of a age spectrum than I'm used to speaking to. So I approached this passage trying to be just really, just in a simple manner. And what I was reminded of as I looked through this and just was trying to be simple is that when we approach the Bible with simplicity, it produces profound results. Sometimes we're just too complex, right? We're too smart for our own good. And as I worked through it this week and I spoke it on Tuesday, I had like two other messages that were milling around on the inside of me that I thought I should speak about and I just couldn't get away from this. It just kept resurfacing in me and there was a question that I felt like, I was asking myself, or God was asking me the whole time, was this, Josh, what's in your hand? And that's what I want to ask you here this morning and talk about it for the next few moments. What is in your hand? I want you to think about that as we go through this this morning, of what is in my hand. This passage of Scripture, I said before, it appears in all four Gospels. Four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, all talking about the life of Jesus. And whenever we find a story that appears in every single one of the Gospels, it tells us this, it's important. There's like flashing lights going off on on either side of it, because not every story is in every Gospel. And so there's something here that God wants us to to understand, that he wants us to see. I first heard this story when I was real little in Sunday school, and it had flannel graphs on it. You know what I mean? They stuck to like the felt wall and and all those things and 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 it was great it impacted me then but i think sometimes what we do is we never grow beyond the flannel graph you know we read these passages as if we were still a five-year-old little kid rather than whatever age we are today and just as impactful as that was to me at five it is has become more impactful to me at the age i am now and What is interesting is that as this appears in all four Gospels, each author gives us a little unique insight into the story and provides a detail that another author doesn't. I mean, the whole of the story is there. And I chose John for a specific reason, and we're going to get there in a few moments. But what we have in John is we have Jesus uh, getting off of a boat after crossing the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, and we understand why he's doing that from the book of Matthew. Matthew tells us that Jesus had been speaking and healing and dealing with people, And then he heard the news that his beloved friend and family member, John the Baptist, was killed. In fact, he was beheaded. And Matthew tells us that Jesus made the statement, I need to go to be alone. I need to go be in a quiet place. And I imagine that he had a level of sorrow and grief that he needed to deal with, dealing with the news of of John the Baptist. And so he gets in the boat and he starts to head across the water. And people that he had been speaking to, there were a lot of people there in that day because of the Passover celebration. They found out where Jesus was going and they rushed to the other side of the sea to meet him there just to hear the life-giving words that came forth from his mouth. Maybe just to get a glimpse of this guy. Maybe Jesus would touch them and heal them. Maybe all the stories that they had heard about this man would come true and they would see it for themselves. 
And so we find Jesus uh, and John getting out of the boat, walking up the hill, and then seeing a bunch of people. I don't know about you, but if that were me, I wouldn't want to see one person, much less a multitude of people. The Bible tells us it's 5,000, and it says that only the men were numbered, insinuating that there were women and children there as well. Scholars estimate that there were uh, approximately ten to 20,000 people on the hillside waiting for Jesus when he gets off the boat. And Mark gives us some unique insight. Mark says that when Jesus saw the multitude of people, he was moved with compassion for them. Moved with compassion. And that phrase is, is familiar in the Gospels, and you can see it throughout the different gospel writers. And literally what it means is that it's a deep sense of compassion, almost physical. And the word in the Greek literally means to feel it into one's bowels. That's how deep that it was. And so it's almost like when Jesus saw those people, he was like, mm. not mad, not angry, not like, I can't believe these people are following me. Get away from me. Kind of like if you have a little kid, you can't even use the bathroom in peace. You know what I mean? But no, this compassion. And then, as you read the different accounts, you find that Jesus did some really amazing things with these people. He began to heal them, he taught them, and then he fed them. Remember, grief, sorrow, tired, multitude of people, moved with compassion. I'm going to heal their sick, I'm going to teach them the life-giving words, and I'm going to feed them physically. And that's where we are now, feeding them. They'd been there all day. They were away from their, uh, where they were close to live, so they didn't have a food source, food source readily available. And Jesus decides, hey, we need to feed these people because I, I bet they're hungry. And so he turns to Philip, and Philip was from the area in which they were in. And he says, hey, Philip, he said, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? And Philip makes a statement, well, uh, we don't have enough money. And even if we worked for months and had enough money, there's not, a, there's not bread enough around in the surrounding area to even begin to feed ten to 20,000 people. It wasn't like this was a planned event, and they had catering on hand for the people who signed up. No, this was just a spontaneous, Jesus is going to be here, let's rush to get there. And they get there, and Jesus says, hey, let's feed them. It's a logistical nightmare. I imagine that Philip probably had the mindset of an accountant. He was a melancholy personality, so he's checking and running the numbers, and he knows that logistically this isn't going to work. And he tells Jesus, it ain't going to work. And Jesus, the only reason he asks him is to test him, because the Bible says he already knows what he's going to do. See, Jesus always knows what he's going to do, but he involves us in the process. Always involves us in the process. He doesn't do things in a vacuum. He doesn't do things in spite of us. He does things through us. And then we have Andrew. That's the next thing that we read. Andrew comes up with a little boy who has five loaves and two fish. Some of the authors in their, in their gospel tell us that, you know, they said, we need to feed these people. And they said, Jesus, how are you going to do it? What do you have? And Jesus says, well, basically he says, what do you have? What do you, what do you have to bring to the table? What's in your hand? And so I believe that Andrew's response in John is in part to Jesus asking, we see in the other Gospels, of what do you have in your hand? And so Andrew brings this boy. And this boy, is the, it's the only, God, John is the only one that mentions this boy. I remember this story from when I was little, and so I went and read in Matthew, no boy. Mark, no boy. Luke, no boy. I thought, am I just making this up? Is, I know there's a little boy. I remember seeing him on the flannel graph. <laughs> And so finally, I get to John. All right, there's the little boy. John's the only one that mentions this little boy. We don't know his name. We don't know where he came from. 
We know that he's little. He's prepubescent because the word used in the original language speaks of a little boy, maybe seven to ten years old, we'll say. And Andrew, Peter's brother, says, hey, I've got this little boy. He's got five loaves and, um, and two fish. Now, what we have to understand is that John tells us they're barley loaves, and it's a very specific detail. There's no detail in the Bible that's unimportant. God doesn't use filler words. Barley is a coarse you know, form of grain. In fact, the Jewish people often fed it to their animals. That's it. And, in, and this is considered poor people's food. This is not considered food that people would eat normally. In fact, the region in which they're in when Jesus is teaching them is in a region that is very uh, rich in wheat production. So these people had access to good stuff. But John tells us he had barley loaves. Now, these loaves weren't like French bread that you can get you know, from a uh, bread company where you go in and it's warm and it's hot and you just eat out of the center because it's so good, you know, and it's big. No, these were, these were barley loaves that were like smashed down hard, kind of like an extra long wheat thin. And uh, it was not very tasty. It wasn't very good. And two fish, fish that were insignificantly small. These weren't salmon. This little boy wasn't carrying a huge load on his back. In fact, the word used, scholars believe they were like tiny sardines. And they would pickle them and they would use them as like a relish kind of a spread on the crackers to eat just for some, you know, for some taste, for some saltiness. So that's what, this, this what Andrew finds in this little boy. Nothing, literally nothing. And we know that because Andrew says, well, Jesus, I found this young lad. He's got five loaves and two fish. But his next statement is, what's that? With all this huge crowd, what in the world are you going to do with this? I kind of think that Andrew wasn't so much motivated by, hey, I'm going to get this little thing. I'm going to see what Jesus can do with it. I kind of think Andrew was like, okay, you asked me what I had. Here's what I got. And this is the reality of the situation, Jesus. You want to feed 10 to 20,000 people? We got wheat thins and sardines. What are you going to do? How many of you, oftentimes, in situations in your life, You feel like God has told you something or you read something in the Bible and then you feel the need to explain to God the reality of what's going on and say, God, you want me to do this? I got wheat thins and sardines. What are you going to do? And that's where we find ourselves. I'm not saying Andrew's a bad guy. I just think Andrew's human. And the Bible goes at great length to show us humanity. But it shows us what God can do in the midst of our humanity. And so... What I love is what Jesus did with the uh, offering that this little boy brought. It says that Jesus took it. He received it. He took the barley, loaves, and the fish. He gave thanks for it. And he looked up to heaven and he blessed it. Asked God to bless it. And then he handed it out. He handed out the the bread first and then the fish. And the Bible tells us that every single person ate as much as they wanted. And then there were 12 baskets full of fish, of, of food, excuse me, left over. From little tiny thing that I bet you Jesus maybe could hold in one hand or two, came 10 to 20,000 people eating as much as they wanted with 12 baskets full left over. And you may say, that sounds like an impossibility. That had to be a miracle. Hey, you're right. You know what? When we read this, we don't logically connect with it because logically it doesn't make sense. Miracles are not ever uh, believed in because you come to a logical conclusion. Two weeks ago, we showed Dot Ward's testimony of God healing her uh, a lump on her throat. And it wasn't in a vacuum. The doctors told her while she was in the office, they had seen the lump, and now they could see it no longer. It was gone. That's a miracle. And the reason why we believe that God does that is because the Holy Spirit testifying on the inside of us that this is a miracle. 
God showed up and did an amazing thing. And that's what happens here. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is I just want to talk about four things we can take away from this story. There's a ton here. There's a lot. In my study this week, I found more encapsulated in this story than I ever knew in my life and tried to distill it down so that we could stay here and be on time. I just want to say four things that we can all take. Each and every one of you can take in your life and you can apply it some way, some form. The first thing I want to talk about is this. Here's what we learn is that Jesus is always willing to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Always. From the moment that he stepped off the boat, he began to do for those people what they could not do for themselves. He healed them. They were sick. They had diseases. They had mental issues. People had demonic possession and stuff going on the inside of them. There were relationship issues, and Jesus began to heal and touch. And then he spoke to them. He taught them. He spoke words of life. He is the word of God. Everything that came forth from his mouth did not return void, and people had never heard anyone speak like that before. You read that in the Gospels. They make a statement as such as, where does this guy come from? We've never heard anybody speak this way. And then he miraculously fed them all when Philip so amazingly points out to us, Jesus, even if we had enough money, there's not enough bread in the surrounding area to begin to even feed all these people. I believe that each and every one of us in here this morning have something in our lives that we need God to do for us because we cannot do it for ourselves. There is something that we're going through where if God doesn't show up and do what his word says that he will do, then we're left with nothing. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be a smaller issue in your life. But I guarantee you, we all have something that we're praying for, that we're thinking about, that Jesus, I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. See, God very rarely, if ever, does for us what we can do for ourselves. He does what we cannot do for ourselves. He takes the natural and does the supernatural. He takes the ordinary and does the extraordinary with it. Begin to think about, at this moment, what it is in your life, what it is in your hand that you need God to do something with, that you need to do what only he can do. Which leads us to the next thing is this, is always be willing to give Jesus what is in your hand. Always be willing to give him what is in your hand. You say, well, I don't know what I got in my hand. There's something. There's something in your hand this morning. It doesn't have to be, I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about money specifically or talent or time or a resource. I'm talking about anything. Always be willing to take what you got and put it in his hands. Because of this, which is the next one, is because little in your hand becomes great in his hands. Little in your hands becomes great in his hands. What that little boy had, probably in both of his hands, was so insignificant. It was something that was probably like, you know, those cheese and cracker things you can buy that come in a thing and you tear them off and you flip it open and they got the little red stick, you know? I used to love those things. That's probably what he had, comparatively. Maybe a little bit bigger. And from that, ten to 20,000 people were fed. I wonder if that little boy had any fear, had any trepidation, or if he was just willing to say, this is what I got. The Bible says we should have childlike faith. What is it in your hand this morning? That it's little, it seems insignificant, but if you were to put that in God's hands, it would become great. We spend far too much time trying to judge 
and evaluate what we have to bring to God. And more often than not, I'd say 99.9% of the times, we deem it insignificant, unnecessary, unimportant, and it would never make a difference in the world. So I'm going to wait till I have something bigger, right? I'm going to wait till I can do all these things right. You know, God, I'm going to wait till I can really read a chapter a day, seven days a week before I ask you for anything, before I give you what's in my hand. I'm, I'm going to wait till I can pray 15 minutes a day consistently before I ever attempt to do anything. I'm going to wait till I treat my wife better. I'm going to wait till I treat my husband better. I'm going to wait till I stop yelling at my kids, or I'm going to wait till I stop struggling with this addiction that I have, or whatever. The list goes on and on and on, and I'm sure if I ask you all to write down on a piece of paper what you're waiting to do before you do anything, our offering buckets would be full, because I got a list of my own. But I guarantee you, regardless of how beautiful it is, or how disgusting it is, God wants you to put it in his hand. Because he does for you what you cannot do for yourselves. And little becomes great in his hands. And I want to say it like this too. I didn't say this first service. But ugliness becomes beautiful in his hands. Brokenness becomes wholeness in his hands. Sickness, disease, and death becomes healing and life in his hands. Like I said, we've all got something. And as the band makes their way back. We've all got something in our hand here this morning. And I want us to recognize this, that there is always something in our hand to give, and it's never too late, which is the last thing. There is always something that we have to give to God, and it's never too late to make that contribution. Never. When I spoke to the young people, I said it's never too early. But to a lot of us, I thought it may be more appropriate if we say it's never too late. We're not the young boy. We're not. The majority of us in the room, we're not young, like he was young. We've lived some life. We have some regrets. We have a little more, you know, our logical brain and analytical brain function at a higher level than his did. And we just, you know, my son's three and a half, and I can say, hey, Carson, um, you want to come help me fix the tire? And he said, yeah, let's, yeah. And he, you know, he didn't know anything about a tire. Probably, and I don't really either, but um, (laughs) he knows less than I do. But you know what? He's just like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. I just want to be with you, Dad. Let's do it. And he'll be more of a distraction than he will help, but he's willing. And most of us, if we're honest, we say, you know what? I, God, I, I, I want you to do something. I need you to do something. But the willingness to give him what's in our hand is not because we don't want to, but because we don't feel like we're good enough, or we don't feel like we can, or we don't feel like what we have to give is acceptable. And we're waiting for it to be bigger. We're waiting for it to be, um, you know, more acceptable. You know, if you spent your life only waiting to speak to God about big things, you'd never get there. We overlook the small far too much. Far too much. If you can't begin to pray and ask God about small things, it's going to be really hard to pray and ask Him about big stuff. Sometimes we think, I don't want to bother God with that prayer request. My toe hurts. God doesn't care about my toe. There's people dying with disease in Africa. That's true. That's true. There is. But you know what? I think God cares just as much about your toe as he does those people dying of disease in Africa. And if you could begin to learn that God will hear the most insignificant prayer 
he also hears the most significant need. With God, he is a good father, a gracious father. And if it's important to you, it's important to him. And he will grow you little by little by little by little, step by step. Very rarely is it like winning the lottery with God. You go from little one day to wham, the next. That'd be great. That's what our culture says. Take it out. It's frozen. Stick it in the microwave. Three and a half minutes later, it's too hot to eat. and It'll burn your tongue off. You know? No, with God, it's little by little. And he's building faith and trust on the inside of us. And as we, we learn to give him things little by little, we can learn to turn over big things. I think one of the biggest reasons why we don't give things to God is we're afraid, especially the bad stuff. I can't give him this part because he'll reject me if I give him this. I can't. I got to fix that before I ever put it in his hand. God never asks you to fix yourself before you come to him. The message of the gospel is not go fix yourself and become clean, then come back to me. It's come as you are. Come as you are right now where you're at. Come. As dirty, as disgusting, as broken as you are, come, and I'll fix it because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. It's never too late. It's never too late to ever put something in God's hand. You can spend 35 years of your life doing all the wrong things, walking the wrong way, and in an instant, take that and put it in God's hand, and God says, let's go. Because of Jesus, let's go. We're here. We're good. Yeah, it would have been easier to not live 35 years that way. That's, that's right. Yeah, there are some consequences for our actions. But with God, it's never too late. Today is the day of salvation. That's what the word says. And that word today just means today. Right now, today. So every day is an opportunity to put into God's hand that small, insignificant thing. I told this story to Carson. And sometimes I practice my sermons on him. And uh, we were putting him to bed. And I told him about this story on Monday night. And towards the end I said Carson just put out your hands like this and so he did and I said that's what the little boy did Carson he had this stuff in his hands and and he gave it to Jesus and I said you know what I said Jesus' hands were out like this too because he received it God is waiting with open hands and open arms what I'd like to ask you to do this morning and this may sound a little weird but I'm asking you guys just to close your eyes and just to symbolically put out your hands if if you feel comfortable if you don't it's okay it's not going to change anything in your life But there are just two questions that I want us to ask God this morning. I want to ask him, number one, and you can do this too, ask God, God, help me see what's in my hand. Help me see whatever it is. Whatever, however great, however small, however beautiful, however seemingly insignificant, help me see what's in my hand. And here's the next question we can ask God. God, help me to give you what's in my hand. Help me to give it to you. Help me to know that you're not going to reject me. Help me to know that you'll take this little and you'll make it much. That you'll take this broken and you'll make it whole. That you'll take this ugly and you'll make it beautiful. Help me to know that you love me. And you're never, ever, ever going to reject me. You're not going to walk away from me. You're always there because today is the day of salvation. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Josh? I want to take it one step further. I want to ask if you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the first thing that you could ever put in God's hand is your life, is your eternity. Before God will take anything else from you, he'll take your life when you give it to him. I don't mean kill you. I mean take 
the brokenness and the mess and all of that. He will gladly receive it. And he'll give you the life of his son, Jesus, in return. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Jess, I'd, I'd love to make that decision to say that Jesus is not just a historical figure, but he is God. He is Savior, and He is Lord of my life. If that's you this morning, I just want to ask you to shoot up your hand because I want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front, but if that's you this morning, just throw up your hand. Thank you. The second question I want to ask this morning is if you're here and you say, you know what, Josh, I need some help with knowing what's in my hand and help to really give it to God. I just want to take the opportunity to pray for all of you. If that's you this morning, I would like, I just ask you to shoot up your hand. My hand's up because I'm not always good at seeing what's in my hand. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all of us here that are in this room this morning. And God, we just ask you to help us see what's in our hand, that thing that we're holding on to that you're asking for, that you, that you want to take from us and make it amazing and make it beautiful and may it impact people. It may not always be bad, God, and for, us, it, for some of us it may be a good thing. Sometimes we've got to part with a good thing to get to a better thing. And so I, I just ask you, God, by your Holy Spirit to help us see not in a condemning way, but just in a real way, what's in our hand. And secondly, ask us, help us to give it to you. And when we give it to you, we know that we're giving it to the most trusted hands that we could ever give it to. You'll be so gracious and so careful, God, and, and just so amazing with it. And we thank you for that. And God, I thank you for the lives of the people that are in here this morning. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this church. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this city. And we thank you for the work that you're going to do in our country and in our world through Faith Community Church. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said amen and put their hands together and celebrate what God's doing in this place.